Good morning. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning with the 11th verse. Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear and observe it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart for you to observe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Let us listen now for the word of God as it comes to us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, beginning with the 25th verse. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him in his own, on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God of grace, spirit of wisdom, 
Give us ears to hear your word of life this morning and the imagination to embody that life for the sake of the world. Amen. Thank you all for being here on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I think it's clear that you guys are God's favorite. I just want to put that out there. So anyway, thank you. A while back, um, I ran across a story in the Los Angeles Times that made a profound impact on me. It was a remarkable piece by an author named Brittany Mejia about an incident 53 years ago at St. Basil's, Basil's Catholic Church on Wilshire, just eight miles to the east of where we are gathered today. If you've ever driven by St. Basil's, you've undoubtedly noticed it. It's hard to miss. Uh, it's an imposing, brutalist structure with striations of stained glass slicing through its exterior planes of concrete. It's really something to behold. The church was opened in 1969 during the height of the Chicano movement here in Los Angeles. The Archdiocese of LA under the authority and some would say acute racism of Cardinal James Francis McIntyre had approved the construction of St. Basil's to the tune of roughly $4 million, which is adjusted for inflation about $30 million today. Understandably, many members of the group Catholicos por la Raza, or Catholics for the People, saw this project as an excess. Yet another instance of the institutional church capitulating to the taste of the wealthy rather than embracing the needs of the poor. And so they protested. For months, while the elite of Los Angeles gathered for worship in the cloistered air of St. Basil's, the poor and workers gathered outside and peacefully hosted their own liturgies in a vacant, street, uh, in a vacant lot across the street. And then at midnight mass on Christmas Eve, 1969, things took a rather dire turn. The Chicano leader, Oscar Acosta, sets the scene in his book called The Revolt of the Cockroach People. He says, quote, it is Christmas Eve in the year of 1969. 300 Chicanos have gathered in front of St. Basil's Roman Catholic Church. 300 brown-eyed children of the sun have come to drive the money changers out of the richest temple in Los Angeles. Now the city's wealthy and Cardinal James Francis McIntyre sit patiently on wooden benches inside, crossing themselves and waiting for the bell to strike 12. While out in the night, 300 greasers from across town march and sing tribal songs in an ancient language." End quote. The doors of St. Basil's were locked tight that evening. And what happened next is not really fully understood. Accounts are kind of fuzzy. But somehow things escalated. And eventually the protesters broke their way into the narthex of St. Basil's church. Here's how Brittany Mejia recounts that not-so-silent night of Christmas Eve, 1969. Quote, a crowd of Mexican-American protesters pounded on the locked doors of St. Basil's. To them, the multi-million dollar house of worship was a symbol of extravagance by the Archdiocese of Los Angeles leaders and a sharp contrast to the poverty too many Catholics endured in East LA. Let the poor people in, they shouted as midnight mass began inside. When they finally got into the lobby, off-duty sheriff's deputies moonlighting as ushers were waiting. Fists swinging, pushing, screaming, and kicking broke out. A couple of demonstrators were injured. More than 20 would be arrested. Inside, inside the sanctuary, 
members of the city's Catholic elite saying, oh, come all ye faithful to drown out the noise. As the service ended, Cardinal Fr James Francis McIntyre likened the young Latinos to storied men on the wrong side of history, such as those who stood at the foot of the cross shouting, crucify him. Forgive them, McIntyre told the parishioners. They know not what they do. It's a remarkable and frankly unsettling story. Many of these protesters are now in their 70s, which certainly puts to rest the OK Boomer meme, which is like popular amongst my generation as sort of a form of lazy sociology for sure. But Catalicos por la Raza were instrumental in forging new paths of justice and inclusion for Latinx people within the Catholic Church in the US broadly, not just in LA. And it started with all things, with of all things, breaking into a place of worship. As I reflected on this morning's text, a passage of scripture most of us have probably heard preached dozens of times if we've been around the church for any length of time, I realized that there is a challenge before us. The challenge is to hear a fresh Christ teaching as a word for us today, a word of truth and life that may be breaking into our own church to call us to radical acts of love, hospitality, care, and solidarity with and for our neighbors. A word that surprises us into reimagining what it means to be neighbors. A word that fundamentally shapes how we view ourselves in connection with everyone and everything around us. A word that reminds us that to truly live, to live a life that overflows with the grace of God, is to reach beyond ourselves and to encounter our neighbors in love, unconditional, even when it costs us greatly. Let's turn our attention for a time to this morning's um, scripture passage. Jesus of Nazareth, uh, and I'm gonna set the scene here. Jesus of Nazareth, he's a self-taught carpenter, right? And he's questioned, by, put to the test, the scripture say, says, by an expert in the law of Israel, right? So you have the self-taught carpenter and, an, and a lawyer, all right? I know there's a lot of lawyers in here, so I don't wanna, I'm, not, I'm gonna not make any lawyer jokes, but anyway, okay, so you have these sorts of, this, this sort of dynamic going on. And the lawyer questions Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, in good rabbinical fashion, responds to the lawyer's question with another question. Well, you're the expert. What do you think? The lawyer, the lawyer responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has cunningly turned the tables, you might have noticed. He is now the proctor of the test, and the expert in the law finds himself being issued a grade by the backwater carpenter. A plus, Jesus says. Your answer is correct. Do what you say, and you will live. And the lawyer is not really satisfied with this, so perhaps trying to gain the rhetorical upper hand once again, poses another question to Jesus. And who is my neighbor? Who? is my neighbor? It's a simple question, 
But the lawyer's inquiry has echoed throughout the history of the world as pretext and license for everything from lawn care disputes to declarations of war. Who is my neighbor names humanity's universal attempt to cleanly delineate those within the boundary of our obligation and those who by accident of birth fall beyond the scope of our concern, responsibility, and care. Jesus, it seems, will have none of that. In another stroke of rabbinical genius, Jesus responds to the question with a story, one that we all have heard, one that I pray will enliven our hearts and imaginations once again today. A man is beset by robbers while traveling down the road from Jerusalem, where the temple is located, down to the trade town of Jericho. Ah, yes, thinks the lawyer. I know the road, dangerous and steep. Lots of nooks and crannies for unsavory characters to stage an ambush. Jesus continues. The poor man is left half dead on the side of the road. And before long, a priest comes traveling down the same way. He sees the man beaten and bloodied, but skirts close to the opposite edge of the road and passes by without stopping. Something the lawyer knows, but we are likely to miss, is that Israel's priesthood represented the highest religious leadership among the Jewish people at that time. In fact, the priests were organized into 24 cohorts or orders, each of which served at the temple in Jerusalem for two weeks per year. Jesus mentions that the priest is heading down the road. It's very specific. He's very intentionally saying that. This means that the priest is traveling away from the temple located in the elevated city of Jerusalem toward the lowland territories. In other words, this priest has completed his service at the temple and is now heading home. Why is this important? If the priest had been heading toward the temple, the lawyer could justify his neglect on the grounds that the priest needed to maintain ritual purity to honor his obligation for religious service. The Pharisees, for instance, believed that a priest could become ritually impure if even his shadow crossed a corpse. But since his service at the temple was completed, the greater obligation, the pressing responsibility for the priest was to serve his neighbor, and he failed to do so. In other words, not unlike those in St. Basil's Church on Christmas Eve 1969, he was more committed to his piety than to his neighbors. May we, beloved, heed this warning. It's possible to pass by our suffering neighbors and neglect their needs, even if we are sitting still in a church pew. As Israel's own prophets pointed out time and time again, piety is often the enemy of faithfulness. Jesus continues the story. A Levite heads down the same road. Now, the Levites served as minor clergy in the temple. We might think of them as like associate pastors or something like that. <laughs> and their mandate to maintain ritual purity was far less strict than the priests. Still, the Levite passes by the injured man without stopping to help. Then, and 
I picture Jesus telling this next part of the story with a kind of knowing twinkle in his eye. A Samaritan walks down the same road. And we might imagine the, the lawyer's eyes growing wide at the mention of this. A Samaritan? Surely Jesus isn't serious. So what's the big deal? Okay, brief history lesson. I promise this is going to be really, really short, okay? All right, so after King Solomon's reign, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, all right? Two kingdoms. We have the northern region, which was originally called Israel and then eventually called Samaria, and the southern region, originally called Judah and then eventually called Judea, which is where we get the word Jew from. And for the purposes of this story, just know that by the time of Jesus, the Jewish people and the Samaritans considered each other bitter enemies, okay? But they both centered their faith and worship on the Pentateuch, the five books of uh, Moses contained in, contained in the Hebrew Scriptures. Both groups, therefore, were commanded to care for the neighbor and the foreigner in their midst. They both abided by those commandments, ostensibly. So you have these two groups who are bitter enemies but are very alike in ways that are very interesting, right? And Marilyn Robinson has actually really humorously observed that if you put these two in front of like Freud, right? <laughs> right? You put these two groups in front of Freud, um, he might have referred this hostility to what he called the narcissism of minor difference, right? The tendency of friction and conflict to occur most frequently between populations that are most similar to each other. It's a really interesting insight. At any rate, the Samaritan walks down the same road as the priest and the, and the Levite, but instead of passing by the injured man, he is moved with pity. He comes near to him, dresses his wounds, brings him to an inn, and pays outright for two months' worth of lodging and medical care, vowing to cover the entire cost until the man is fully recovered. Which of these three, Jesus asks, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Okay, notice what Jesus has done. Track with the story here. Notice what he's done. He's flipped the terms of the debate from the lawyer's initial question. Instead of answering, who is my neighbor? Jesus interposes a better question. How do we behave as neighbors to others? Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury and um, Albus Dumbledore lookalike, which is a very niche joke for those of you who are Harry Potter fans out there. Um, anyway, uh, Rowan Williams reflects on the powerful theology of solidarity contained within the Good Samaritan story. He says, quote, in our human lives, we are related always and already in ways that we never chose and never planned. We are embarrassingly bound up in the life of everybody else around us." End quote. Williams names a truth that we so often seem to forget, that we are born into this world intimately connected to and dependent upon the life of another, every single one of us. And that we go on to live our lives connected to those around us in ways we will never fully understand. Bound up, for better or for worse, with all of humanity and all of creation. 
despite what we commonly hear about the priority of independence and individuality, perhaps the defining feature of Scripture's depiction of humanity is that we exist interdependently in relationship with others. This really shouldn't surprise us, given that Scripture also tells us that we bear the image of God, who is beautifully conceived as Trinity, community itself flowing outward in love. As bearers of this image, we are never merely individuals. At the core of our identity, like God, we are communal beings. We cannot silo ourselves from others. Our fate, our, wel our, our welfare, our success, our failure, we might even say our salvation, is bound to those with whom we share this common home. We are neighbors, completely interdependent on one another, with the capacity to give life through love or destroy life through neglect. Perhaps this is why the Apostle Paul could say that the whole of God's law is contained within a single commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Rowan Williams continues, quote, It is for us to define ourselves as neighbors by our actions. It is not a matter of deciding who out there deserves to be loved by you. It is a question of your decision to be a neighbor your decision to be someone who offers life to others. This is a basic choice which turns our lives into life-giving realities." End quote. What we find in the remarkable story of the Good Samaritan is what we might call a theology of solidarity, a solidarity that reaches beyond borders, race, class, gender expression, sexual orientation, religion, historical rifts, a solidarity that is founded on the primary fact that to live life to the full, to find what Scripture calls eternal life, means that we must take care of each other and that no one, no one is excluded from the category of neighbor. We began our this, this brief homily with a, a um, story about the Catholic Church, so it's only fitting that we end with a quote by Pope Francis. In reflecting on the Good Samaritan story, Pope Francis says this, quote, you can become a neighbor to anyone you meet in need, and you will be so if you have compassion in your heart. That is, if you have that capacity to suffer with the other, end quote. Beloved, in the shadow of all that we collectively face as a people, as a nation, as a planet, whether global pandemics or housing crises or systemic racism or economic injustice or climate change, may we listen to the truth that echoes forth from ancient wisdom and breaks into our midst with unsettling power, becoming neighbors to those around us, standing in solidarity with them living through the world-changing power of love. This is the way of life that God calls us to. And the way of life is our only hope and salvation. Amen.